I kept hearing it over and over again, asystolic, asystole, asystole. That means you have no heart rate, you're flatlined. Racing to the hospital in the back of an ambulance, Chip Conley, in the prime of his life, died. As paramedics scrambled to restart his heart, the powerful figure in the boutique hotel business had a vision. And what I saw on the other side was this beautiful mountain cabin that had uh, lots of windows and a skylight with just sun coming in. It was a message. And Chip instantly understood what he needed to do. Ben Rattray was laser-focused on becoming the next Wall Street titan when his world was rocked. It came in the form of a bombshell dropped by his younger brother, and it would change the course of his life. The pain that he experienced... Uh, specific to me and other family members, was overwhelmingly inaction. It wasn't so much commission, it was omission. And it's something I regret substantially. Two business leaders, two radical events. Events that would reshape their careers and redefine one of the most important tenets of success, the power of wisdom. I'm David Fisher, and you're listening to Three and a Half Degrees, an original podcast from Facebook. Three and a Half Degrees is a business podcast focused on the power of connection. In my job at Facebook, I love connecting people and seeing the magic that happens when they learn from each other and discover new ways of doing business. And I want to share that magic with you in this podcast. First, let's get back to Chip Conley and how he managed to get himself into and out of his medical emergency. I grew up in Southern California uh, in a place called Long Beach. The thing I loved the most about it was the fact that I was constantly learning from people who were different than me. Chip Conley's hometown is recognized as one of America's most multicultural cities, and that fed his lifelong curiosity about different cultures. People would call me the social alchemist because I really knew how to bring people together and connect them and have them open up to each other. Now, if there's one place in the world where people of all walks of life exist under the same roof, it's a hotel. Chip combined his talent for bringing people together with his entrepreneurial spirit. And that's when, at age 26, I started a company called Joie de Vivre, Joy of Life. And Joie de Vivre Hospitality started a boutique hotel company by buying a broken-down motel in the inner city of San Francisco, uh, a place that was actually pay-by-the-hour, and turning it into a, a, a rock-and-roll motel called The Phoenix. I didn't know a thing about hotels, and I'd started a hotel company. So that worked for me in the sense that it was like I wasn't trying to pretend I knew something. The senior management team of that first hotel were two people older than me, both of whom had deep hotel backgrounds. And... and um, So I brought on people who were smarter than me in that particular subject area. But as the leader, he still had to set the direction. Someone once called me a vulnerable visionary, and I like that. So I just say that, you know, I'll take that. I am vulnerable in the sense that I'm extremely candid and open about who I am and and what I believe, and, and I don't hold things back. 
If you're visionary without being vulnerable, your feet aren't on the ground, and people at some point start losing faith in you because they think that you're Pollyanna. If you're vulnerable without the visionary, people just say, oh my God, it's a roller coaster here because the emotional state of the leader is going up and down and I don't have confidence in, in him or her. So I think being both and knowing what was the right mix uh, was a way of me starting to understand wisdom. You know, wisdom is the alchemy of confidence and doubt. Chip must have found the right combination because over the next two and a half decades, his empire grew from one hotel to 52. He became something of a celebrity, writing management books and giving speeches on leadership around the country. One night at a party, he got a bad cut on his leg. That led to an infection. A few days later, still not feeling great. Chip delivered one of his leadership talks to a crowd of eager entrepreneurs in St. Louis. At the end of my speech, on crutches, I sat down to sign some books, and that's when I went unconscious. And about five minutes later, I went flatline, and I died. Paramedics restarted his heart. They loaded him into an ambulance, where he flatlined again. Over the course of the next half hour on the way in the ambulance to the emergency room, I died multiple times. Each time he awoke, he told the attendants the same story about what he had seen on the other side. I was in this beautiful mountain cabin that had uh, lots of windows and a um, skylight with, with just sun coming in. And I'm looking, observing the most beautiful set of stairs, wooden stairs I've ever seen, really beautiful grain. And then there's this viscous, really heavy oil, but frangipani-scented, like tropical-scented oil that is actually oozing down the stairs with the light hitting it such that there was almost like kaleidoscope's colors on the walls and this beautiful tropical smell. So it was a very beautiful scene, um, quite specific, Chip spent the next few days in a hospital room, reading philosophy, trying to make sense of what he'd experienced. The medical explanation was simple. he had had a reaction to the antibiotics, and that stopped his heart. But Chip believes the event had a much deeper meaning. It was the most poignant evidence that I was supposed to go do something different with my life. You know, if you know you're going to die and you don't have much time left, it means every moment you have, you want to be focused on what it is you're supposed to be doing with your precious time here on Earth. It helped me be crystal clear about what I didn't want to do anymore. And I wasn't necessarily clear on what I was going to, but I knew what I was leaving. And I was really, frankly, not very happy. And I, running a company called Joie de Vivre and not being happy is a, a, a cognitive dissonance because, you know, joy of life is what Joie de Vivre means. And I wasn't feeling a lot of joy. I could see that great recession. And whereas in the dot-com boom, we were gladiators. We got through it. I didn't want to get through it. I just sort of wanted to go do something else. Doing something else meant Chip would have to change more than just his job. If you've run a company and you've built a company and, you've, and you own the company... <laughs> And it's sort of your identity. It's like Richard Branson saying, I don't want to own or run Virgin anymore. (laughs) 
that so very minor version of that in terms of my thing uh but that's really where i was at and and it took me two years to get to a place where i could actually sell the company in the great recession sold it to a guy named john pritzker whose father started hyatt and that allowed me to get the you know get out of jail free card of of saying i'm ready to move on and do what's next He left the corporate world and became a bit of a professional nomad. He traveled the world and visited cultural festivals in 20 different countries. He rediscovered his social alchemist roots. For him, it felt natural. It was very hard for other people. My coworkers or my people who worked for me in the company or friends and things like that, they, no one could believe I was doing this because everybody assumed that Chip would be doing this till he was 85. One day in 2013, he answered his phone, and on the line was a man best described as a younger version of himself. I got a call from Brian Chesky, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. Um, at that point, he was 31 years old. I was 52. And he said to me, you know, we'd love to have you help us. We're a small tech startup that's growing quickly. How about if we work together? Chip was happy with his life. He didn't need to go back into business. But then, Brian said something that triggered his curiosity. And he said, and it's all about the sharing economy now. And I said to him, what's the sharing economy? (laughs) It had been two and a half decades since Chip had shaken up the hotel business. When I was a 26-year-old starting a boutique hotel company, I was the rebel outsider. And the Hiltons and Marriott's had no idea what a boutique hotel was. Now I'm twice that age. And this young guy who's an outsider, has no experience with hospitality, is saying... Airbnb and a home-sharing company in the sharing economy, I had no idea what he was talking about. Airbnb offered him a senior role. But Brian wanted something more. He also wanted Chip to be his mentor. It was a request that showed great humility, a trait that's relatively uncommon in startup CEOs. There's a, a lot of young people here who want to go out and start their company, and they've got to go raise money from venture capitalists. And venture capitalists do not want to give money to someone who actually is in self-doubt. What that leads to is uh, leaders in Silicon Valley, young leaders in Silicon Valley, who want to portray the fact that they know it all. Um, and in fact, that's quite dangerous because no one knows it all. Chip certainly didn't. In the first few weeks, I realized, oh my gosh... I'm an intern as much as I am a mentor because I'd never worked in a tech company before. He was a baby boomer surrounded by Gen Xers and millennials. The only way I was going to make this work was if I somehow was a mentor, a mentor and an intern simultaneously. Chip and Brian created a relationship that really worked. Over the following four years, Airbnb expanded to over 4 million listings and has become a global phenomenon. I am being mentored on DQ, the, Brian is teaching me digital intelligence and I'm teaching him emotional intelligence, EQ. So it was a DQ for EQ trade. And I think that's the future for wisdom. It used to be wisdom had one direction. It went from old to young. And I think today it's all about mutual mentoring, old to young, young to old, and back and forth and back and forth. Chip Connolly is a hotelier, entrepreneur, author, and speaker. 
You're listening to Three and a Half Degrees, a podcast all about the power of connection. I'm David Fisher. Later in this episode, we'll connect Chip with Ben Rattray in a really interesting conversation about the importance of humility in business. Sometimes what people don't know is where their passions will take them. This is what Ben learned in his journey to becoming CEO of one of the world's largest platforms for social good. I had two passions. Uh, one was spiritual. Actually, I was quite religious as a kid. And the second was material. I was passionate about becoming an investment banker. His religious conviction was based in service. I'd uh, helped run a group when I was in high school called Love of God. Uh, and it was actually a beautiful experience of just an immense, you know, spirituality and, and connection and intimacy. His business inclinations, meanwhile, were based on a Hollywood script. I remember watching the, the movie uh, Wall Street. And this is in the 80s, and I was a young kid. And I just remember loving the idea of walking down on Wall Street with a double-breasted suit and money flowing out of the pockets. That character, Gordon Gecko, was defined by the principle, greed is good. And it's the most ridiculous, obnoxious perspective. Instead of being sort of having an aversion to this absurd character, I had it like a, an affection in a way, an inclination to desire to, to model the same kind of power and success financially and otherwise. And I mean, it's embarrassing so much so that it's sort of hard to not crack a smile and reflection of it um, at this point because of the dramatic transformation that I've undergone. Uh, but that was a real influential sort of image and, uh, I think, motivation in my youth. His definition of faith was challenged when he started college. Ben found his classmates had a very different approach to their faith. It was a much more focus on the text of the Bible and the strictures of the Bible, and it really turned me off. Uh, I, I retained and still maintained passion for a lot of the core values uh, that I had been raised in, and then I found embedded within uh, my faith, but I didn't retain the deep belief of the ontological claims of religion, the, the text of the Bible, um, and all the formalities that were associated with it in traditional institutionalized Christianity. His devotion to business remained strong. By his senior year, he was on the fast track to a life of high finance. Then he took a weekend trip home to see his family. We were having a conversation in our living room. It was late at night, and he was talking philosophy, religion, and politics with his younger brother, Nick. And we had spent almost every night of our youth in that very room, and it was in that room that he and I were just together. Very late, I can imagine it was something that he had wanted to say for a while. What his brother shared that night was that he's gay. My reaction was one of, I think, just love and affection and warmth and desire to embrace him. And the thing he said most powerfully uh, and influentially to me was the thing that was most painful for him as a young, gay, closeted American uh, wasn't people that were explicitly anti-gay, but those who refused to stand up and to speak out against them. People like me. People like me. Ben decided then and there that that's not the kind of person he wanted to be. Uh, it's something that I deeply regret um, and something that was the single most influential force in turning my attention to a, a life of service and of trying to advance fairness and justice and equality. 
It was a powerful experience of shame, uh, of the shame of inaction, that, that I didn't do anything in service of someone who I loved so much. It, what became very clear to me very soon is that I, I could no longer pursue the career I had expected to in investment banking. For me, personally, it felt like I was pursuing it because of selfishness, just in service of my own well-being. In the, in the context of seeing the suffering of others, especially those who you're so close to, it is difficult, I think, to do that. Ben set out to find a new direction. He traveled for a year, eventually ending up in Washington, D.C. And it was a powerful experience, um, but not the one I expected. I mean, I really feel like I, I learned firsthand the inability of everyday citizens to have voice in what Americans, at least at the time, like to think was the world's greatest democracy. And uh, it was a painful experience because I, had, I was really idealistic about this idea of, of using politics in service of social good. The impact of his religious youth, the coming out of his brother, and then an eye-opening trip to the nation's capital were all swirling around inside of him. It filled him with a need to be of service, a burning desire to help, and a frustration with the system that was resisting change. The catalyst was technology. This was 2004, and social media was just taking off. I end up seeing this sort of first feed and recognizing the same inclinations that draw people together around friends and photos, could draw people together on causes they cared about, uh, and it was just an immense opportunity for social mobilization and movement building and change. Uh, and that's when I decided to start the company. That company is Change.org. Change.org is a, is a global platform that empowers people to start online campaigns around any issue they care about, whether it's uh, saving a local park or uh, ending asset attacks in India. Often, success is measured by getting corporations and politicians to change their practices. Usually things like ending the use of plastic straws or reducing packaging. But Ben sees an even bigger impact. We'll see campaigns take off. And and nobody that joined those campaigns woke up that day thinking that they were going to take action on that specific issue. It just came into their newsfeed. They became emotionally gripped by it and take action. And that could be any number of issues in any given day. The site has 25,000 campaigns every month and more than 200 million users globally. Both aspects of Ben's upbringing, his religious convictions and his passion for business, have played an important role in that success. It is remarkable to see the extent to which the core values of that were the center of my religiosity are those that I didn't just retain, but are a driving foundational force for why I do what I do. Um, and without understanding in a deep and significant way uh, how to run a business and the mechanics of scaling a business as an organization, we wouldn't be able to have the kind of impact we want to have in the world. I mean, both are really necessary, and so I feel... Uh, real gratitude to have those as tools in service of ultimately what I think my life purpose is in sort of trying to advance uh, a platform in which everyday people can stand up and speak out on the issues they care about. Ben Rattray is the CEO of Change.org. You'd have been hard-pressed to predict that the combination of Ben's business acumen and religious devotion would add up to a website that crowdsources political advocacy. But that's exactly what happened. Unlikely connections can lead to unlikely outcomes. Kind of like the unlikely connection that happened 
when we brought Chip and Ben together for the first time to give us some lessons in what we know and what we don't know and how we can tell the difference between the two. So isn't it interesting that um, we think of knowledge as being something that's only in our computer that Google spits at us, and yet there's this process knowledge that has a lot to do with intuition and emotional intelligence and synthetic thinking, which is something that we get better at over time. We don't get better at memory. We get worse at that. And so I just feel like that's a piece of the wisdom of, of people that is sort of sometimes lost, is the idea that someone has a good idea of how to get something done. Yeah, it's one of the things I wish I were to avail myself of earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've been around for 10 years. It has wow. been a long journey. And we went through, in particular two years ago, uh, a really challenging episode of, of transforming our business model. Things had gone well from sort of a user acquisition and distribution mobilization perspective, and monetization hadn't gone quite as well. Uh, and I had been so focused on a particular way of executing um, with a very specific vision for how things should be without, frankly, I think the wisdom of recognizing, kind of pattern matching, what businesses look like when they hit a critical period of time when they need to fundamentally relook at their business model. Um, And had I had the experience or had I been working with people who had the experience to basically re-look at that earlier, we would have faced a much less painful transition, uh, which we went through in 2016, in which we, we literally transitioned from 320 people to 160 people Oof. over the course of a remarkably painful summer. Um, and I, I do think sincerely that had I had the wisdom that I have now, or at least increasingly, uh, we would have been able to avoid at least much, if not all, of that pain. Uh, and it's painful now in retrospect looking at what I might have been able to do if I looked broader than just my immediate surroundings for those lessons. What, so give us a couple of examples of what you now know that you didn't know in 2016. I think the biggest thing for me was as an entrepreneur, uh, we are celebrated for vision, for having a clarity of uh, of, of foresight for having a passion and conviction on a particular execution path. Uh, what we are not celebrated for is the humility to recognize that though we may be directionally correct, we may not be specifically perfectly correct. Uh, and there is real uh, power in reflecting and challenging one's own viewpoints. Uh, one of the challenges as an entrepreneur, as you deeply know, is you're always in the business of selling, of evangelizing, whether it's employees or it's the press or it's investors. Uh, but to be able to really run and scale a truly disruptive business, you also have to not just be selling, but challenging your own views. Uh, and I wasn't nearly enough. And so I think the biggest lesson for me is the humility to recognize that though the vision may be broadly correct, the specific path of execution is always subject to revision and should be challenged. And I should be proactively soliciting that challenge in a way that I wasn't. And yet where it gets in the way is when you don't know what's stinking. Um, and and when you don't know, and, and, and frankly, the people around you are scared to tell you that, especially if you're sort of messianic. And proactivity in this is so important. I think that because I was not receiving a lot of advice, and, and I believe at least I didn't experience receiving that advice, mm-hmm. I experienced being passionately sort of in pursuit of a very particular objective um, that I wasn't receiving what I needed to receive. And, and actually one of the most challenging things was subsequent to this shift in our business model and the, the painful downsizing of our team by 50% uh, was talking to a number of more experienced entrepreneurs uh, about what we had gone through and then being able to fairly easily identify through pattern matching, oh, you should have seen this and this and this. Uh, and that was a real challenge um, as, as a recognition of what 
what might have been. And of course, now my commitment to both the company uh, and to anyone that I interact with is try to avail myself and our organization of the wisdom that we've accrued and continue to solicit feedback from other people who've gone through experiences that can help shine a light on ours. I think it would be wise for companies when they're doing their employee satisfaction surveys or culture surveys to have some specific questions and say, who in this organization is a role model for wisdom? Or in other words, who would you go to for advice other than your boss? And I think that'd be a great question to be asked. And, and it could be a young person who, or an older person who knows who, because we know where power often rests, but we don't, actually don't know where wisdom necessarily rests. If you are 100% sure about everything, then you are surely not sure. <laughs> I mean, you just, you, you don't know what you don't know. And that is a dangerous thing, not a helpful thing. And I do think that uh, is provides a, an unhealthy structure of incentives for young entrepreneurs. If you were to give advice to someone 10 years younger than you, when you were, you know, in the early days of uh, change.org, what would you give to them as advice? As an entrepreneur, how do you excel, how do you cultivate and harvest wisdom faster? Uh, I think one of the most important things is recognizing there is deep wisdom in the search for wisdom. There is deep, deep confidence, I think, built in a team when you as the entrepreneur don't claim to and believe that you must know everything, but actually recognize that your role is equally to source knowledge from that group of people that you work with or people outside the organization and people who presume to need to know and be right in every circumstance certainly don't know. Yeah. It is interesting how our ego gets fed in the whole process too. And I, you know, having been started a company and ran it for 24 years, I know this sense of when people sort of look to you for the answers and, and then you sort of get used to it and you sort of get fed by it. And then you have an identity that's based upon it. And, you know, it's hard to actually you know, strip off the, you know, the Superman, Superwoman costume. Yeah. And I think that to your point, the, the three most powerful words that I've seen uttered in meetings and I've tried to embrace myself are, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and being willing as a CEO to recognize that and own that as an actual powerful response, not one that is uh, emasculating or just somehow uh, sort of a representative of your inadequacy. It's a representative of your owning the reality that you couldn't possibly know everything. Uh, and I think that actually shows the confidence that employees should be looking for um, rather than the inverse. I think also, you know, a lot of times the more senior you get, the more your questions are what and how questions. They're sort of optimization questions. Um, and sometimes a why or a, an empathetic why. I mean, you can, you can ask a question of like, why the hell you think that? But I mean, a why or a what if? But we end up not asking why and what if questions because they're not efficient questions. Oh, and frankly, I think I was victim to this. Mm. I believed that I should always be the smartest person in the room, the best expert in everything, have the ultimate most uh, uh, thought through ideas rather than recognizing my role as a facilitator of a remarkable mm. group of people who I needed to work with, collaborate with, and empower to collectively be the most effective unit we could be instead of me being the most effective isolated individual I could be. You don't have to be the CEO of a company. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. You can be anybody doing anything, just taking an inventory of what did I learn this week? Because in any kind of time where you're sort of tested, can sometimes feel like it's never going to end. And it can also sometimes feel like you're just getting dumber in the process. And the truth is you're probably not. The truth is you're probably actually learning some things and literally just documenting them is a way to build some wisdom. Yes, I have a practice on Fridays, uh, which is 
uh, primarily reading in a very intentional way, uh, books in the domain in which I want to gain more wisdom and knowledge, um, and then importantly reflecting in what I call a journal of ideas. So I have this mm-hmm. journal, it has sort of a persistent flow of ideas that I have, but also reflections. And I think that that processing is such a critical component. Um, but the combination of the two I found to be most rich. Yes. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to connect. Good to see you. Thank you. Wisdom is tough to define. Sure, you know it when you hear it. But what is it? We often think it's all about experience. But what if you're the one people look to for answers, and you don't have the experience you think you need? Would we rather look uninformed in front of our peers, or just fake it till we make it? As Chip and Ben discussed in their conversation, wisdom doesn't come from knowing all the answers. It's cultivated by asking the questions that others are afraid to ask. And most importantly, not being afraid to admit, I don't know. Three and a Half Degrees is an original podcast from Facebook. For more information, visit us at facebook.com slash three and a half degrees. That's three and a half degrees, all spelled out. Subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Fisher. Thanks for listening.